Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. We're going to be in the first um, chapter of the first letter of Peter this morning. The title of our sermon is Faithful Followers Fear the Lord. Faithful Followers Fear the Lord. It's going to be First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. The title of this series has been Faithful Sojourners, Walking Worthy in a Wayward World. And what we are looking at in First Peter, what Peter has been going on and on about is how to live faithfully in a world regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of persecution, of suffering, of trials, regardless of whatever it may be that we face, that we go through, that the Lord himself ordains that we walk through, how can we be faithful? We're going to see another element of that today. Really, in verses 13 through 21, Peter is really carrying three major arguments of, of how to do that. I know last week we looked at three basic ways to be a faithful sojourner, but really the overarching theme is three different main verbs. Those verbs are the action of the sentence of this is what Peter is saying. This is the heart of what Peter is getting at. And the first one was to set our hope on God. That was found in verse 13, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. And then number two was to live lives of holiness. We found that in verses 14 through 16. Peter's command to no longer be conformed to the former passions of your ignorance. of What you used to be like, don't be conformed to those old ways anymore. But instead, walk in holiness as he who calls you is holy. And today we're going to see the third leg of this tripod, if you will, which is to fear the Lord. So let's go ahead and stand together. Let's read our text, and then we will get into what's going on here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, this is the word of the living God. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially 
according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have sung your worship, hopefully sung your word. I pray that you have received our worship in song as a pleasing aroma before you this morning. I pray that you were indeed glorified and magnified in song. And I pray that you have prepared our hearts this morning to receive your word. I pray that you have prepared me to preach your word. Lord, both the preacher and the listener are absolutely incapable of either speaking your word clearly and powerfully or receiving your word and applying it faithfully. We confess that we need the power of the Spirit to work through the word of God this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to push distractions and all the other things that often cloudy and foggy our mind out, and that we would focus alone on what you would have us to know and to learn and to apply this morning from this section of First Peter. We know that your word is inspired, it's infallible, it's authoritative, and it's also sufficient to live lives of godliness. Please speak to us through your word this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So Peter's main deal is to really flesh out the grace that is to come. The grace that God has already shown you in Christ. And those things are the basis upon which he then offers, or begins rather, to exhort us on to faithful living, to exhort us on to set our hope on the grace to come. And we do that by, we look at by preparing our minds for action, of being sober-minded. And then the exhortation to walk in holiness, knowing that the God who called you did not call you to just live however you see fit, but He called you out of your sin. The Lord does not only save us from our penalty of sin, but the most gracious thing that He does is save us from the desire for sin. And in walking in holiness, we become less and less desirous of the things of this world and more and more desirous of the Lord, His Word, His truth, His worship, His glory. That is a true grace that He shows us. Now we are looking at the fear of God. I think if we're being honest, we would, understand, we would readily admit that the fear of God is something that we don't talk about often these days. 
Books about the fear of God don't fly off the shelves. Conferences about the fear of God aren't likely to sell out huge stadiums. And even thoughts of the fear of God don't fill many of our minds. God is often only thought of as this gentle, compassionate, kind and loving God. And while these are clearly parts of His nature, we celebrate that. But if that's all that we know of God, then we will end up with a one-sided view of Him that does not represent who He truly is. God is more than just compassionate. He isn't only gentle and merciful. He also exacts vengeance and wrath upon His enemies. These days there is no shortage of sermons being preached about what a great buddy you can have in Jesus. How friendly He is that He's not going to look down on you. He not only accepts you as you are, He celebrates who you are. This buddy of a God just wants you to be happy. I would submit to you this morning that God is far more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Many pastors don't ever speak of the severity of God, only His goodness. So they end up crafting an idol made up of twisted scriptures. And guess what? You can make millions by doing that. This happens because people are biblically illiterate. It happens because we don't see any need to read the Old Testament. It happens because we don't see God as that we see God as this Old Testament God, and then there's this New Testament God. There's this Old Testament God who is mean and angry, and there's this New Testament God who's only soft and gentle. This is a low view of God. And this low view of God affects how we live. It affects how we worship, how we think about church, how we think about sin. It affects absolutely everything. So inevitably, we arrive at passages like we're looking at today, and this idea of fearing God just doesn't sit right with us sometimes. Why? Because we have a low view of God. So then, here is another way that we see that we need to understand what the early readers understood as they read this letter. What would... Peter's audience, these elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what would they have understood about the fear of the Lord? So we're going to take a moment and consider that. All throughout the Old Testament, we find many, uh, we find endless motivation really to stir up within us the fear of God. Remember that all the scriptures that they had at that time, they didn't have a MacArthur study Bible. They didn't have a King James Version. It's not that old. What they had at that time was, if they were Greek, they had the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of, guess what? The Old Testament. So what they were most well-versed in was the Old Testament. And we see that Peter already in the very opening of his letter is just, I mean, this is just overflowing with Old Testament delusions. Why? Because his early audience would have understood 
what he's pointing back to. They also would have had these newly written letters from the apostles. That's why there are many places named that Peter is writing to, because they would pass this around. And eventually, as we see, this became part of the holy canon. Throughout the Old Testament, we find many accounts of God punishing Israel. In Jeremiah, we find the prophecies that God is going to use Babylon to destroy Israel. You know the verse that says that God's mercies are new every single morning. That verse comes from Lamentations. You know what Lamentations means? It is a book of lament. If you read through Lamentations, it is full of depths of sorrow. Crying out to God because God has destroyed Israel at the hand of Babylon. Why? Because of their wickedness. Because they had lost the fear of the Lord. They had no longer concern with what God had to say. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah himself was often beaten. It was as though the people at that time would say, at some points they even say, would somebody please make this guy stop talking? We, we don't want to hear about him anymore. In Isaiah, they say we, we no longer want to hear of the Holy One of Israel prophesy to us smooth things. Prophesy to us delusion. If that is not representative of what continues to happen today, we find the account of creation, the burning bush, of Yahweh freeing his people from the iron grip of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea. On and on and on we could go with accounts of God displaying his absolute total power. In the Old Testament, we find at least 48 mentions of the exact phrases, the fear of the Lord, fear God, or the fear of God. Fourteen of those instances show up in the book of Proverbs alone. What is Proverbs known as? It's the book of wisdom. And fourteen times Solomon is writing about fearing God. Job himself, one of the things that is written well of Job is that he was a man who feared God. Sinners. One of the things that marks their life, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, is that the fear of God is gone from their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Proverbs 1.7 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8.13 the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Proverbs 10.27 The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 14.26 In the fear of the Lord, get this, one has strong confidence. In the fear of the Lord. This is wisdom literature teaching us that fearing God is a very good thing. Offering endless benefit and only fools despise the fear 
of the Lord. Suffice it to say that the audience to whom Peter is writing would have been quite familiar with the theme of fearing the Lord. Not to mention they had kings in those days. And they were taught to fear the king. There would have been this deep respect and awe of the king. That's why you would kneel before the king. That's why you bow before the king. So today it's a bit more difficult to wrap our minds around this concept of fear because we so often view God as a means to an end or this big lovable teddy bear in the sky. But as we see from the whole of Scripture, our passage for today included, the fear of the Lord is essential to the Christian life. As a matter of fact, the fear of the Lord is what begins the Christian life. It is the fear of the wrath to come. The Lord removes the scales from your hearts, of your the eyes of your heart, so that you can see clearly. I am condemned before a righteous judge, and then you flee to God for mercy. That is the fear of God in action. That is how the Christian life begins. This is how we grow in holiness, as. Solomon said, it's the beginning of wisdom. So the rejection of the fear of the Lord, as R.C. Sproul has put it, is also the height of foolishness. You cannot live a God-glorifying life without the fear of the Lord. His readers would have understood that Peter is not referring to them to live in some sort of terrified state of panic and dread in a sense of being afraid of their coming condemnation. After all, I mean, Peter's been going on and on about this great hope that we have, this coming grace that we have in Jesus Christ. He talked about God's sovereign choosing of us in and through the work of Christ. No, the kind of fear that Peter is referring to is the deep, profound awareness of how big, how majestic, how awesome, how sovereign, how powerful God is, and how much He hates sin. This is a healthy, God-glorifying fear. It's not a paralyzing fear. It is a motivating fear. This is what Peter is pointing to the fear of the Lord, and that I understand His sovereignty and authority over me. And I understand that if I obey Him, things will go well. But if I choose to live in rebellion, I can only have the expectation of His wrath and fury. That's all that's left for me. It's notable to mention that Peter is writing this again to Christians who are facing Various trials, largely at the hand of unbelievers. It's almost like he's saying, don't fear the society in which you live. Don't fear those who persecute you. Fear God. As Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill you. That's all that man could do to you, is kill you. He said, fear God. Because God can kill your body and also cast the soul into hell. 
Those are the words from Jesus. Meek and mild Jesus. Peter's command here, conduct yourselves with fear, is referring to how you live while you are elect exiles in the dispersion. Live in and with the fear of the Lord. If we're being honest this morning, it is so much easier for you and I to fear man and not God. It often guides our decision making. Guess what? It guides how a lot of people choose to preach. Things that we choose to deal with or not deal with. We were talking about this morning in Sunday school church discipline. A lot of times why that is overlooked in the church is because of the fear of man and not having the fear of God. But the fear of God is what marks every faithful Christian. Remember, we discussed in the opening sermon to 1 Peter that elect exiles was referring to really all Christians living in the world anywhere because we are not of the world. That's why he calls us exiles or sojourners or pilgrims, your Bible might have. We never truly belong here. This is not our home. We await the new heavens and the new earth. So what Peter is really saying is live your whole entire life, every single part of your life, live it with the fear of the Lord. All areas of your life for all of the days of your life. Live in such a way that you wouldn't dare bring reproach upon the name of God. Live in such a way that you would not dare turn from Him. That you wouldn't dare treat the holiness of God lightly. A few quotes from notable men to help us think of what this means. A.W. Tozer said, quote, When men no longer fear God, they transgress His laws without hesitation. The fear of consequences is no deterrent when the fear of God is gone, end quote. If I don't fear God, it doesn't bother me to think of a coming judgment. There was a report that came out recently that some 40-something percent of millennials didn't care, didn't know if there was a God, and they just didn't care. Speaks to a lack of the fear of God. Charles Spurgeon, quote, He who fears God has nothing else to fear. Close quote. If I fear God, I need not fear any trial I face in this life. This is what his readers would need to grasp. I don't need to be afraid of the persecution. I don't need to be afraid of the voices. I need to be afraid of harming or bringing reproach upon the name of God. John Calvin, quote, nothing is more powerful to overcome temptation than the fear of God, close quote. This is a necessary aspect of being holy as God is holy. And Dr. Lawson, quote, the one who kneels before God can stand before men. The fear of God always displaces the fear of man, end quote. I won't fear the persecution, the jabs and slights from people when I fear God. How about one from the wisest man to ever live? Solomon. Ecclesiastes 12.13 The end of the matter, all has been heard. 
fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man. So, question must come up then. How does one stoke up this fear of the Lord within the heart? How can we grow in the fear of the Lord? With the rest of our time this morning, let's look at four motivations that Peter gives us to live with the fear of the Lord. Number one, number one motivation is because we call on him as Father. This is the very first part of verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, the NASB says it, if you address as Father, Peter is assuming that his readers do indeed call upon God as Father. This is a tremendous privilege that we have as Christians. You understand that when Jesus called God Father, the Pharisees called him a blasphemer. You're saying that your father is God? We have father for Abraham for our father. They called him a blasphemer. This is an incredible privilege that we have as Christians, is that we have come to know God as Father. This is indicative of the intimacy and nearness that we have with God and His care and His giving life to us. He's not a far-off, distant deity. He is near, and He loves us as a Father. 1 John 3, 1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Peter just wrote in verse 14 that we are to live as obedient children. We are His children because God has lavished upon us the riches of His mercy and grace, but we are not to live as spoiled children. We are highly privileged in that we know the Father and are called His children, but there is great responsibility that comes with that privilege. We are called to live lives of obedience, lives of holiness as obedient children. He's not a father who winks at sin, nor does he smile upon slackness, but he desires a people who are zealous, for good works. That's Titus chapter 2. Not just who don't do bad things, but who are zealous, passionate, fired up for good works. As the children of God, we represent His name while we are on this earth. So it doesn't matter if we find ourselves persecuted or suffering greatly for some other reason or tempted with sin for that matter, we are to keep in mind whose child we are. I can't act that way because I call on Him as Father. And as a good good father, guess what? He will discipline His children when we get out of line. Hebrews 12.6 For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. We've never experienced the discipline of the Lord. What does that say about our status with Him? If we've never experienced the chastisement of a holy Father, what does that say about where we stand with the Lord? 
In other words, if we're able to live in unrepentant sin, there's never guilt, there's never shame. What does that say about our status with Him? God has tremendous, unfathomable love for His children. And that's precisely why we should live in fear of Him. Because He loves us. And He will discipline His children. You see, God is perfectly righteous and holy. He does not tolerate sinfulness even with His children. Conduct yourselves with fear because you are His child. How does this fear manifest itself? Not in hiding from God. Not that kind of fear. Not cowering away from Him, but it manifests itself in you walking in obedience to Him and running to Him when you fall. A child who falls off of a high place after being warned not to is not beaten by loving parents. His parents will still have a word of exhortation for him, sure, but they will run to comfort him. They will run to scoop up that child in their arms to make sure he's safe. Our father is not abusive towards us when we disobey his commands. He will discipline his children. Make no mistake, but he does always remind us of his love shown for us in Jesus Christ. Thus, we live in fear of offending the Father who has graciously given us all things in Jesus Christ. Number two, our Father is the righteous judge. Our second motivation to living in fear through our time here on earth is that our Father is the righteous judge. Peter writes, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. We know from chapter 2, verse 12, that Peter's audience was spoken of as evildoers. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, he writes, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery as they malign you. So, though they might find themselves judged unfairly in the court of public opinion, which they are, because they are both looked at as evildoers, and they are also maligned for not joining in on the evil that the real evildoers are doing, though they are judged unfairly in the court of public opinion, though people sometimes hold them to standards that they don't hold themselves to, it is the righteous judgment of the Father that they are to concern themselves with. Not what people say. We judge partially. God judges impartially. That is to say that we cannot expect favoritism to be shown to us when we rebel against His commands. We will have to give an account for all that we have done when we see Him On the last day, guess what? That means even Christians. When we put our faith in Christ, that does not absolve us from needing to give an account to the Lord on the final day. We will be asked what we have done for Him. And we can rest assured that our 401k, our great expensive wardrobe, our savings account, our many hours of uh, 
devoting time to the church, my perfect church attendance, great personal achievements will not be impressive to him. We know that Jesus told us in Matthew 7.21 that not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. How do we do the will of the Father? We walk in fear of him, understanding that I will need to give an account on the last day and only what was done for him will matter. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. And at that day, we will not be able to say, well, my upbringing. Well, you see, the way that I was brought up because of my parents. Well, you see, you didn't understand how mean they were being to me. Well, you don't know about all of the, what about them? Well, what about, well, what about God is going to hold each of us accountable for our own actions? 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test which sort of work each one has done. As the old poem says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You can have a lot of great achievements, and those things are fine. But we need to understand that, what, what am I doing to prepare myself for that day? When I have to give an account of my time, of my life, of my resources, to God Almighty Himself. And He's going to judge me impartially. Further, if we call upon him as father, but we abandon the faith or we leave biblical orthodoxy or we live in unrepentant sin, we are not to assume that just because we call him father, it will excuse us in his sight. He judges with right judgment, with perfect judgment, and he sees and knows the deepest intentions of our heart just as the psalmist praises God in Psalm 139, and this just is so mind-blowing, that in the womb, God formed your life. And each day of your life was written before you had lived any one of them. And the psalmist goes on to say, "If I, where can I hide from your spirit? If I go as far as the east goes, if I can go as far as the west goes, if I make my bed in Sheol, if I cover myself in darkness, God, you are there. While that can bring us great comfort when we are in the midst of suffering, what does that also mean then for whenever I choose sin is that God is there and he sees you don't have time to go do those things, I see you binging another Netflix series. I see you spending hours in front of television, but you said you don't have time to pray. You don't have time to serve. You don't have time to do these things. Every moment of our life is going to have to be given an account of to the Lord. So then... We want to be people who hold the twin truths of 1 Peter 1, 3-5, through 5, 
that says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time and also Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 that says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We want to, as Christians, hold both of those truths simultaneously in our hearts. And when we do, we will live with confidence that He's our Father and that He has saved us and we, He is a good Father while also living in fear knowing that He's the righteous judge to whom we will give an account on the last day. Number three, our third motivation is that we've been redeemed. Verse 18, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Because we have been ransomed from our former ignorance, from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. You see, your truest nature as a child is not from your forefathers, not from your genealogical line, but it is your heavenly father. Because you've been given a new nature and you have been made a part of the family of God. This language of being ransomed is again steeped in Old Testament imagery. Peter's audience would surely be familiar with the account of Yahweh freeing his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. That's where this comes from. Deuteronomy 7.8 It says that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, saved His people because He is faithful to keep His covenants. He brought the Israelites out of that country not to just let them roam around and go live as they please and do what they want, but so that they would become His holy people living in holiness. And so it is today. We are in slavery to sin, which is our own personal Egypt, until the Lord comes to redeem us, to free us from the house of the slave house of sin. This is what is meant by being redeemed or ransomed. The fear of the Lord Peter is writing to live with then is how the free live. The free in the Lord live with the fear of the Lord. In Galatians 5.1, Paul tells us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So be free. Live in the freedom of the fear of the Lord. Don't go back to your old ways. As he said in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't become a slave again. You're free now. Live freely. And at the same time, we don't belong to ourselves, do we? 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. If we would just grab hold of that. If we would just grab hold of that one sentence. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. We think of freedom today as being able to do whatever we please. But listen, true freedom is being able to please the Lord. That is true freedom. Further, if, if this God is powerful enough to save you, just how powerful is this God? He is invisible. You've never seen Him. Yet He does this invisible work within the child, the, the person that He is making His child, and transforms you in a way that you can't see that changes you for the rest of your life. How powerful is this God? He can take the worst of sinners and make them holy. That is a tremendous display of power. Since you've been freed by this powerful God, then live freely in the fear of the Lord. Lastly, the last motivation for the fear of the Lord is the high cost of our redemption. We say free grace, but it was not cheap grace. Look at verse 18b and 19. You were ransomed, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Earlier in verse 7, Peter referred to gold when he was saying that a genuine faith that has been tested is more precious than gold. Now he's writing that we were ransomed with something more valuable than gold and silver. Again, we see Peter pointing his readers away from what can be seen to spiritual realities, to our spiritual riches. What we have in Christ is of infinite more value than anything in this world. Christian, do you believe that? What I have in Christ is of infinite more value than anything in this world. The blood he spilled is more precious than the most precious metals. This is the tremendous debt that you and I owed, that it could not be paid by gold or silver. It required the most valuable person to ever live to lay down his life and die. In saying that Christ's blood is precious, Peter really is speaking to the infinite value of the blood of Jesus. In pointing out that silver and gold perishes, we can see that you might be able to pay a ransom for someone. You might be able to redeem land with silver and gold. But that only serves a purpose in this life. But the blood of Christ, the spilled blood of Jesus, is so valuable that it is efficacious once for all time. One time to cleanse us for all eternity. Do you understand the value of the blood of Jesus? When we wrap our minds on that, when we meditate on that, it will cause us to live in deep honor and respect of those, the high cost that was paid for us. Of this Christ, Peter goes on to write, 
that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. In other words, you couldn't be a believer in God without him, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, not you and I, so that your faith and hope are not in yourself or your works, but in God. Christ spilling his blood to ransom us was not some sort of last ditch effort made by God after the fall. In saying that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, that is to say that this plan to have Christ spill his blood for us, to redeem us from our futile ways, was devised and ordained before time ever began. When we say God is sovereign, that's what we mean. That before time started, God already wrote the whole thing out. Before mankind ever sinned against God, God had already planned to redeem us. This was not a mistake. I said a few sermons ago that salvation was not plan B, it was plan A. Why? Because God did this to bring himself glory. I said a When God created this world, he had a plan to display the full measure of his attributes to glorify himself. And we are living out that plan. In allowing sin into the world, God is able to display all of his glory. He shows his sovereignty in electing his people out of his own free will and planning this redemption before the foundation of the world. He shows his mercy in pardoning guilty sinners. He shows his grace in making those guilty sinners his children. He shows his power in transforming wretches like us who were dead in our slavery to sin. He shows his love to us by doing all of this while we were yet sinners at our lowest, most undeserving point. He shows his attributes in redemptive history for his own glory and we are blessed recipients so in reality the story of your personal salvation did not begin when you raised your hand did not begin whenever you started to turn from god but it began before the foundations of the world in the mind and the heart of the father this sovereign plan before time began is further demonstrated by Peter writing that Christ was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In other words, he was revealed that God sort of unveiled his plan to bring himself maximum glory and redeem undeserving sinners in the incarnation, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It becomes altogether overwhelming. To know that as God formed you in the womb, he already knew how he was going to save you. He accounted for all of your sin. Every last shameful detail of your sin, God saw it. But not just your past sin. He sees the sin that you have in your life right now. He sees it clearly. Your heart is open, laid bare before the holy, 
righteous eyes of God Almighty. And not just that. He knows all the sins that you will commit in the future. He knows your heart and why you will do them. He sees every single time that you look at the Bible and you yawn where you would rather do anything else. He sees every single time that you pray and you're distracted. He sees every time that you look at the opposite sex with lust in your heart. He sees every last detail and he accounted for all of it. Every last bit. That is why it had to be this way. That is why gold and silver could never do. It had to be the blood of his own son. He was the only one worthy enough and valuable enough. It had to be Jesus Christ coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying in our place, and being resurrected and taken back up to heaven. The life and blood of Jesus is what it cost for the immeasurable debt that you and I owed him. Yet, he paid it. Both the Father and the Son. The Father in foreordaining the Son he loved since eternity passed perfectly to die in our place, to be our mediator. And the Son in being in complete agreement with the Father's plan and stepping into creation, taking on the likeness of a servant, suffering his Father's wrath meant for us, dying at the hand of lawless men. Because he did this, we know it is only by you putting your faith in this glorious, unfathomable grace that you may be saved. Why conduct yourself in holy fear while you are on this earth? That's why. Let's stand. As we meditate on those four motivations that Peter has given us, we have a few minutes to respond to the Lord, however he is stirring in your heart this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for writing this out so clearly for us. Father, we confess all of the ways and times that we do not live in fear of you. And we ask that you would change us, shape us, and mold us. Help us to meditate on these things so that we would walk in the reverential fear of God Almighty. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.